morning. Welcome again. We are finishing today uh, the book of 2 Samuel, uh, this really important narrative at the middle of the Old Testament. Uh, We are on page 273, if you're in one of the blue church Bibles, page 273. Um, This couple of stories that we're doing today are quite uh, rich or complex. And so there's some stuff in here I need to explain to you guys, and I didn't have the rhetorical skill to shorten my sermon any shorter than I did. And so it's a little bit longer than usual, uh, but just be patient with me, pay attention, drink your coffee. Let's read together. I'm gonna st- we read 2 Samuel chapter 21 earlier. We're going to jump over to chapter 24 now, and I'll read most of this chapter. Page 273, 2 Samuel, chapter 24. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are called chapters, the little numbers are called verses. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. I'm going to jump down to verse 9. They've gone through the whole land and they've taken the census. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araunah, the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. Jump down to verse 25. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. 
This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we come humbly again before your word, seeking not to master it or to stand above it, but seeking again to be mastered by it. For in standing under your word, we find life and joy and peace in you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know or some of you have seen that my house is currently a total disaster. Uh, Last summer, if you don't know the story, uh, a clogged kitchen sink uh, revealed that we had broken pipes all over the place underneath our house, uh, which have somehow along the line ruined the foundation and with the foundation most of our flooring. And so nine months later, we're still trying to get all of it fixed and repaired and remodeled so that we can move back into our house. It's a huge mess. It's been a very humbling mess because me and my family and all of us around us, we lack the skills and the knowledge and the resources to get ourselves out of it on our own. Uh, In a far more cosmically serious way, something like that's going on in our passage today. King David... And Israel, more widely, are facing an enormous mess. The enormous mess, not of a house falling apart, but of something much worse. The enormous mess of sin. Sin is what the Bible calls the rejection of God's good wisdom for us. The failure to accept his goodness for us. His good ideas and rules and wisdom for our lives. The Bible says that when we reject God's good ideas and wisdom for our lives, his instructions for us, it brings about all kinds of horrible effects on us, all kinds of horrible effects around us, even horrible effects, our passage shows us, beyond us in time. The two passages that we're covering today are showing us that King David and Israel and we today, they're showing it that we are unable to extract ourselves from this mess. But even more than showing us what a mess we're in, the passage wants us to see and delight in something else. It wants us to see and delight in God's desire and ability to take us out of this mess. We can't do it ourselves. That's kind of the first point of these stories. And the second point of the stories is to show you and underscore for you that God can and does. Last week, we looked at the central pieces of 2 Samuel's four-chapter conclusion. Chapters 21 through 24 are the final appendix, so to speak, the final conclusion of this long narrative leading up to and concluding with David's life. Uh, Last week, we saw that the middle pieces of that conclusion depict for us the might of God, the might of God to rescue his king and his king's people from their enemies. But today, we are on the outsides of those chapters. We are at the beginning of chapter 21, and we are at the end of chapter 24. Uh, They frame the entire conclusion by depicting for us the mercy of God. So in the middle, you have the might of God. On the outsides, you have the mercy of God. The mercy of God in rescuing his king and his king's people from their greatest enemy, their sin. And these two stories at the beginning and the end are very similar. I don't know if you caught that as we read them. Uh, The king of Israel commits a serious sin against God. And then that sin leads to God bringing about a widespread disaster on the people of Israel. But then both stories end with God showing mercy to his people by taking the disaster away from them. 
Uh, as you perhaps already noticed as we read them, uh, these stories raise huge theological question marks for us, uh, especially the first story. But I want to show you that all of it is intentional, including the fact that it's very difficult to figure out what it means. I want you to see, especially, that all of this is meant to make a very serious and important theological point for us today about the mercy of God. So let's dive into the first cycle of sin, disaster, mercy, back in chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Keep your Bible open in front of you if you have one. Chapter 21. You hear there in verse 1, Teresa read this earlier, that there's this long famine. Sometime, we don't know exactly when, sometime during David's reign. Uh, If we've been paying attention to the arc of the story of the Old Testament, uh, then our ears should perk up. Because under the terms of God's covenant with Israel through Moses, that's kind of the beginning of Israel's story in the Old Testament, under the terms of that covenant, that arrangement that God lays out with Israel under Moses, God makes unique promises to Israel about material, physical prosperity in the promised land. But on the condition that they obey God. God says, if you obey me, I will make your lives prosperous. I'll give you lots of food. I'll give you lots of children. I won't uh, let your enemies harm you. Uh, This is all at the end of Moses' life in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, This, and one of those conditions that God says, uh, the flip side of it is that there's going to be curses if you don't obey. If you don't obey, then life is going to go very badly. And one of the things that's specifically named is famine. God says, if you don't obey me, there's going to be famine instead of prosperity. So as we now read, uh, centuries later, in 2 Samuel, now as we read that there's a great famine on the land during David's reign, uh, it's cluing us in that something's wrong. Something's wrong in and with the people of Israel and their relationship with God. If you've ever read the Old Testament, you'll see that is often the case. David sees this dire situation, this famine that's going on and on and on for years, and he goes to the Lord. He seeks clarity about what's happening. Now, don't miss this part. In God's kindness and God's mercy, God responds to David's request. God speaks clearly to the problem. He says to David, there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So then the text reminds us about who the Gibeonites are, uh, why we should be so worried to hear about what Saul's done to them. Centuries before David's lifetime, Uh, when Israel was conquering the promised land of Palestine under the leadership of Joshua, who was Moses' successor. Uh, Back then, there was this local tribe of Canaanites who tricked the Israelites into making a solemn pact with them, uh, under which they would be allowed to live in peace among the Israelites. Those are the Gibeonites. In Joshua chapter 9, the book of Joshua chapter 9, you hear that even after Joshua the leader realizes that they've been duped, He knows that they can't go back on their word because they've made promises to these people in God's name. Joshua points out that if you violate the holiness of God's name by breaking a promise you've made in his name, then you will bring down God's curse on yourself because God is particularly interested in looking out for the weak and the vulnerable. So now you fast forward to the lifetime of King Saul. So now we're just before King David. We fast forwarded to King Saul. Saul is Israel's first and very failed king. Uh, At some point in his life, we don't know exactly when, 
uh, we hear in verse 2 that Saul had sought to strike down the Gibeonites in his zeal for the people of Israel and of Judah. Saul had done what many rulers have done all through history. Uh, You find some minority group, uh, you blame them, you attack them, you eliminate them in the name of standing up for your own people. And given what we have already seen earlier about Israel's behavior and attitude toward the spectacular, impressive Saul, uh, it's probably the case that they were very glad for him to do this, that they were glad for him to commit genocide against the Gibeonites. Uh, They ate this kind of stuff up. This is exactly why they had demanded a king. They wanted him to do impressive, uh, spectacular, murderous things for them. Now, Scripture teaches that murder does not only harm the victim or even just the victim's family, but that murder also brings a kind of moral pollution on a place and a wider people. This is what the Bible calls blood guilt. Uh, Ordinarily, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, but some of this extends into the New Testament also, ordinarily, the only way to remove blood guilt and the harmful consequences that it brings is by executing the murderer. Uh, That is a principle that goes back even way before Moses. On top of all that, because Saul, like Israel's other kings to follow, because Saul holds a unique role, king, in a theologically and politically unique society, Israel, because of all that, Saul, in some sense, represents the whole people. His guilt becomes their guilt. Even as it's also pretty clear, even in this story, that Israel is also wicked, that Israel is also guilty. Uh, Remember how earlier in 1 Samuel, when Israel demands a king, remember this principle we, we saw, that one of the ways that God responds to an evil and wicked people is by giving them evil and wicked rulers. All of it, this representation of the king on behalf of the people here in Israel, all of that's an echo of how Adam, the first man and the first king, uh, was representing all of humanity in the Garden of Eden. So that Adam's guilt, the Bible says, has now become the guilt of every human ever born, even before you actually do anything sinful. This is a doctrine, uh, this is a Christianity 101 doctrine. This is not a Presbyterian thing. This is not a Protestant thing. This is Roman Catholicism. This is Eastern Orthodoxy. This is Protestantism. All of us together believe in this basic doctrine. As unpopular as it is in our world, it's called original sin. It means we're all in it together. We're all guilty because of what Adam did before us. And we reinforce that by our own acts of guilt. So you have this old promise now in this story being broken against the Gibeonites You have Saul uniquely representing Israel as king. But then by the time of this famine, Saul's dead. He's been dead for a long time. And so the million dollar question is what should David do about it? It's possible. It's possible that by the time of the famine, uh, Israel has participated in, still approves of, or is ignoring this genocide. That would bring about some kind of guilt upon them. Uh, But the text doesn't actually say that. So how can David restore this broken relationship between Israel and the Gibeonites? And this is where things get really difficult. And to be honest, I am still not entirely sure how to understand all of it, let alone what it means for today. The Gibeonites come to David and they say, we want you to sentence seven of Saul's descendants to be executed by exposure. 
Uh, that either means kill them and then hang up their bodies in the open, or it means kill them by impaling them on a big spike. Uh, both of those things are historical predecessors of crucifixion, which wouldn't be invented for a few hundred years. In verse 7, you hear that David spares Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. Uh, remember from way back in the story, he was under David's special protection uh, in his disability. So in the midst of this dark story, this confusing story, we have this glimpse of mercy. But David finds seven other descendants of Saul. Some of them are sons and some of them are grandsons. And he hands them over to be executed by this oppressed minority group, the Gibeonites. And at this point, our alarm bells, I hope, are going off. We say, how can this be just? How can this be fair? Is it biblically and theologically legitimate to execute somebody because of the crimes of their parents. I've been wrestling with this for three or four weeks, trying to figure out what I'm going to say to you guys. Uh, Some people, some scholars look at this and they say, in this case, it is biblically legitimate because of a uniquely violated covenant, because of Saul's uniquely representative role. But I think... Right now, this is my position. This might change the next time I preach through 2 Samuel. Right now, I think actually that the text is hinting that it's not legitimate for David to do this. Even though God has told him clearly since Saul's sin is what is causing this famine, uh, there's nowhere in this story where God says, now here's how I want you to deal with it. I want you to execute Saul's children. The Bible, including the Old Testament, repeatedly forbids the punishment of children for the sins of their parents. Even though the Bible also says two things that help us understand what's going on here. Uh, First of all, the Bible tells us that God brings about serious consequences on somebody's descendants or on the wider society because of that person's sin. Uh, Your descendants and the people around you will often end up imitating you in that sin. Uh, We see this all over the place in our society. Uh, Think about uh, addiction. Think about fatherlessness in inner cities. Uh, Think about the ways that people's sins bring about misery on everybody around them, on their children especially, and the ways that their children end up often imitating them in those sins. Uh, So that's the first thing that the Bible says about these kinds of things. The second thing uh, that we need to hear too is that the Bible also says that because every single human is guilty, because all of us are sinful, God has the right to take away our lives from us whenever and however he wants. At the end of the day, it is not cosmically unjust for God to take away the lives of Saul's sons and grandsons. And that's a different uh, question than whether or not it's right for humans in their own capacity as judges to do so. And so, while it is possible, keep tracking with me, I know this is complicated, while it's possible that Saul's sons or grandsons were somehow directly involved or complicit in the genocide, The text does not ever actually say that. And God never commands David to deal with Saul's sin in this way. So I suspect that by way of negation, the text is hinting for us that this is not legitimate. David should not be listening to this request. But I think a lot of what's going on is that we're supposed to be seeing what a huge mess all of it is. The confusion is the point. The darkness is the point. Horrible consequences because of a horrible king and the current king, who's the best king that Israel's ever going to have, the current king does not know what to do about it. 
He's confused, he's not sure, and he's apparently going about dealing with it in a way that is wrong and illegitimate, biblically and theologically. On top of all that, and perhaps because of all that, God is largely absent. God is largely inactive. God is largely silent. Uh, With the sons and the grandsons suffering miserably for the sins of their father, I think a lot of the point here is to sober us. To make us see how terrible sin is. What a terrible mess Israel and humanity and our world are in. How incapable they and we are of actually and fully and finally dealing with it all. The mess and the horror of everything going on is underscored in the next little story, starting in verse 10. You have the mother of two of the condemned men keeping this gruesome vigil over their corpses as they are rotting there in the open air for weeks or even months. She sets up a tent nearby so that she can keep the vultures and the wild dogs from eating their bodies. And it's a foreshadowing. I don't know if any of you thought this. I think this is a foreshadowing of how Jesus' mother, Mary, would stay there with him at the cross. All of Jesus' friends had left him, but Mary was there watching him slowly suffocate to death on the cross. A mother loving her child, loving her son as he's executed as a criminal. David hears about this woman's compassionate regard for the deceased, and he's convicted. He's convicted not only about how he's shown profound disregard for their remains, but also about how he hasn't shown enough regard for the remains of his enemy Saul. So David commands that all of their bones be gathered together and properly buried, respectfully buried in the right place near their families. You hear in verse 14 that it is only now. It explicitly says, after all this happens, now, after David has shown mercy to Mephibosheth, after he's shown concern for the bodies of the dead, just like this mother did, it's after all of that happens, we're told, that God now actually responds to the plea for the land. The famine ends. The famine does not end. God does not stop the famine when those men are executed. Another clue, I think, that it's not a legitimate way to deal with it. I think uh, God ends the famine anyways, in spite of the fact that everyone's kind of muddling around, doing things wrong or not quite right. Uh, It's amazing to me that God ends the famine anyways, uh, in spite of David's and Israel's weaknesses, in spite of their ignorance about what to do, because God is merciful, because that's just who he is, because he's a kind and a generous God, even though they deserve much worse. So that's the first cycle. You have a king sinning against God. You have God bringing disaster on the people. And then God showing mercy by putting a stop to the disaster. The story, as here at the beginning of the conclusion of David's life, is raising this huge thorny question for us. How will Israel's king, how will Israel's people ever be able to deal with the horrible consequences of his and their sin? That's the big question at the end of chapter 21. All of it, I think, underscores their inability to do all these things, but God's kindness, God's generosity in doing it anyways for them. So now jump over to the final story, chapter 24. This is the very end. It's kind of a strange way to end a book. We have the second cycle of the king sins, the people suffer, and God shows mercy. Except now it's David. Now it's David who's the sinful king, and God is far more active. He's far more clear in moving from the disaster to mercy. You hear in verse 1 that again the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David against them. 
saying, Go and number Israel and Judah. And so once again, you see that Israel has fallen into some kind of pattern of sin and brokenness in their relationship with God. They're violating their relationship with God so that once again, God is justly and rightly angry with them. And here, the way that God punishes the people is by decreeing, which is an important theological word that means that God wisely wills and allows. God wisely wills and allows for Israel's king David to fall into his own sin. I realize the wording of this verse raises all kinds of difficult questions about how God relates to evil. Uh, Here is a short version of a response to that very important, very mysterious theological issue. The Bible teaches that God is entirely good, but that he is never the author or the cause of sin or evil. But... At the same time that he sovereignly as a king rules over all things, including evil actions, evil desires of humans. And that those humans, because of that, remain genuinely responsible for their evil. They remain genuinely culpable for their sin. God is in charge even over evil. It's very mysterious. We don't fully know how to explain that. People are responsible. The Bible says both of those things over and over and over again. Now, what is David's sin? Uh, He insists on taking a kind of census, uh, even over the objections of his general Joab. If you've been following along in the story over the last few months, you might remember that Joab uh, is a morally bankrupt man who's often doing evil things uh, without regard for what's right or wrong. And so by the fact of him being concerned about David doing this, you know something very serious is going on. But you might be wondering, what's the big deal with counting? Why is God so mad about uh, building a spreadsheet of his army? Why is he so offended by this? Uh, The text does not exactly tell us what motivates David to build his spreadsheet, but it does repeatedly tell us that he's counting those who can be called up for warfare. So the issue is probably something to do with David pridefully relying on his own strength, perhaps with the aim of going on some foreign military adventure uh, which God has explicitly forbidden Israel from ever doing. Whatever the exact motivation, the basic problem is that David is not relying on the Lord. David is not relying on the Lord to give him strength and peace, but instead he relies on the sheer numbers of his weapons and of his soldiers, which is exactly what the kings of the world then and now so foolishly build their hope upon. It's similar today to how we look to our bank accounts or our families or our politicians or the size of our churches for our ultimate hope and confidence instead of trusting the Lord to provide for us, instead of trusting the Lord to protect us. It might seem innocent enough, but when fixating on these things becomes a substitute for trusting in God, this story is showing us that we're doing something that's actually profoundly wrong, profoundly sinful. It's offensive to God. In verse 10, you hear that David is suddenly convicted by what he's done. He realizes somehow, I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be taking this census. I'm not trusting the Lord. He realizes the arrogance and the wickedness of depending on numerical strength rather than on God. So he prays this prayer of repentance. He says, Lord, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Please take away the iniquity of your servant. I've been very foolish. But as you've already seen in the life of David from way back with that story of Bathsheba and Uriah, uh, 
as important and as necessary as it is to genuinely repent when we sin, that does not mean that there are no consequences for sin. David is repentant, but God sends a prophet to talk about the consequences. God confronts David. He says something like this. He says, oh, you want to play numbers games, do you? How about this? Let's play with numbers. Pick one, David. Do you want three years of famine? Do you want three months of being invaded? Or do you want three days of a pandemic? You choose. Uh, Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is amazing. David says, I am in great distress. Let's fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. You see what David is saying? This is really amazing. In the midst of all of his sorrow, in all of his suffering, in all of his remorse, he's still focused on the mercy of God. He knows God's character. He knows God's heart for his people. He knows that even when God's people sin, God remains merciful and kind and patient. And so he says, I would much rather have contagion than invasion. I would much rather face God's mercy than man's evil. Then and even now, pandemics are often out of human control as the last three years have so clearly shown us with our technocrats having overpromised benefits and continuing to over-deliver on harms. And so here David, because a pandemic is something so out of control, he says, I will cast myself on God's mercy, as all of us should, when we are facing profound darkness and distress, even when darkness and distress are the result of our own sin, like it is here for David. Even as God disciplines his beloved children, as painful as it really is, we need to remember that God is wise and gentle and good. You see the goodness and the mercy of God highlighted even more as you go on in chapter 24. Look at verse 15. The Lord sends a serious disease on Israel. He kills tens of thousands of people in only a couple of days. Uh, Kind of like the story of the Exodus with the Passover and all of that. Uh, What you have going on is on... The kind of the front side of it, it's a pandemic, but we hear also that on the back side of it, there is an angel. There's a destroying angel of death, kind of spreading the disease around. But then when the angel gets to the capital city of Jerusalem, you hear in verse 16, God say, Enough. He says, No more. Stop right there. Israel and David deserve far more and far worse. But on his own initiative, this is really important, on his own initiative, God shows mercy. No one asks God to do this. No one cajoles God into doing this. Nobody tricks God into doing it. Nobody pays God uh, some kind of religious transaction to get him to mechanically respond. God shows mercy because that's just who he is. David sees the plague stopping right there in Jerusalem on the hill. And he pleads with God. He says, please forgive me for my arrogant rebellion against your care for me. David offers himself in the place of the people. He says, what have they done? Kill me instead. But of course, uh, David doesn't know what we know from the first verse of the story, that Israel is also sinful, that this is also God's righteous judgment against them. So you see God's mercy in making the first move 
to stop the plague, but you also see God's mercy now in him making the first move to deal not just with the plague itself, but also to deal with the evil and the pollution of the sin that caused the plague. In verse 18, God says through his prophet, once again, all in his own initiative, he says, go and buy the land on that hill where the plague was stopped. Build an altar and offer animal sacrifices. This is Mount Moriah, which is probably where Abraham had offered up his son Isaac so many centuries before. And this hill is going to soon be the site of the temple of Solomon, David's son. And so after haggling with the owner about who's going to pay for what, David buys the land. And then in verse 25, you hear that he builds an altar. He offers two kinds of animal sacrifices. Uh, First, he commands, he offers burnt offerings, which symbolize total dedication to God. And then he offers what are called peace offerings, which because you get to eat part of it, part of the barbecue, they symbolize relationship with God and with his people. And then you hear the exact same phrase that you heard at the end of chapter 21. The Lord responded to the plea for the land. We're told that the plague is now averted. That means turned aside from the land and from the people. So do you see how this is different than the first story? In the first story, God speaks to the problem. He says, Saul has committed genocide and there's blood guilt because of it. And then at the end of it, God doesn't really do anything in the middle. But then at the end of it, God just shows mercy because that's who he is. But in between, it's pretty unclear. What is God doing? What does God think about all this? Does God approve of all this? All through the chapter, you just see mess, mess, mess everywhere. It's all horrible. It's all dark. David and Israel and us, we're all unable to figure it out. We're all unable to rescue ourselves from it. Uh, The world is in such a horrible mess today, isn't it? Beneath all of it is our rebellion and our rejection of God and of his purposes, the ways that we have shoved him aside, the ways that he responds to that by saying, okay, see you later. How discouraged you can be as you read the news, as you scroll social media, what a mess the world is. But here in chapter 24, God is far more active. He speaks far more often. He responds immediately to the animal sacrifices uh, that he himself commanded. David is no longer stumbling in the dark about what to do about the mess. God clearly and mercifully offers a way out for the people of the mess and the misery of sin. And so as the book of 2 Samuel ends, we are once again confronted with the weakness and the ignorance and the sinfulness of David, even though he's the best king that Israel's ever going to have. But even more than that, even more than seeing that David is such a disappointment, here at the end of the book, we're being pointed forward through the merciful and the generous heart of God toward a perfect sacrifice, toward a perfect altar, toward a perfect and future turning away of the plague of sin. And with that turning away of the plague of sin, the future renewal and healing of this world. Because just beyond this very hill outside the city of Jerusalem, God's final and messianic king would one day himself be gruesomely executed before the Lord. He would slowly suffocate on a Roman cross. There Jesus was going to be the perfect sacrifice. He would be the sinless king who, unlike David, really could and did offer up himself in place of a sinful people, you and me. And so in a way far deeper than Israel's kings ever could, Jesus really did and ultimately did represent us. Jesus really did bear God's judgment instead of us so that he could turn it away from us. 
And now that Jesus has risen from the dead, he continues to represent all of those who put their trust in him. He gives us life and renewal and peace now in this world with all of our suffering. But in the end, we know that he's returning to finally overcome all of the horrible mess of our sin in our lives and in this world. And so in Jesus, the final sacrifice, the final king, in Jesus, see and enjoy the mercy of God. Let's pray. Father, we with David are so confused, uh, so baffled by the darkness and the mess of this world. But we rejoice that we have a word even more clear than what he got about how you would deal with it. Uh, We rejoice to see so clearly the way that Jesus has come as our king to suffer and die in our place and to rise again in victory over all the forces of darkness and sin. Help us, Father, to enjoy your mercy in him. Keep us from falling into sins of relying on ourselves and our strength rather than on you. Teach us in humility to be joyful and confident in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.